people are dead with dozens more missing after monsoon rains triggered flash flooding around the country. Large parts of Yemen have been left in ruins after more than two years of bombardment from the U.S.-backed Saudi-led coalition. And Al Jazeera reported this week that damage to infrastructure, including drainage systems, may have contributed to the death toll. A cholera outbreak continues to spread across the country. It's killed more than 2,000 people and left hundreds of thousands sick. We're seeing record storms, water storms, throughout Bangladesh and India and Nepal right now. As, and, of course, on everyone's mind is Hurricane Harvey as uh, the flooding continues in Houston. It's just 12 years after Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans is still recovering from that storm. During the storm of Hurricane Harvey, a few things have been clear that, um, one, we the concern over all of the refineries and a couple different explosions has happened with the chemicals building up dangerous pressures and polluting the air for people living in. But also, Nick, I cannot believe the news when you hear that Border Patrol is still out and having checkpoints as people are trying to evacuate. Right, and this was also something that actually took place during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, not a lot of people were hearing about this, obviously, on the mainstream news, but there were emergency prisons set up uh, in New Orleans as well. Mm -hmm. um, the next piece of news, uh, also from the U.S., President Trump is expected to decide the fate of the immigration policy known as DACA, uh, threatening to overturn the Obama-era program that protects nearly 800,000 undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children. Uh, immigrant rights groups and their allies have pledged mass mobilizations in response to any move to cancel DACA. And this decision comes after a week uh, of Trump pardoning an anti-immigrant, uh, Ar the Arizona sheriff, Joe Arpaio, 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 who was convicted of contempt in, in court, uh, contempt of court, for defying a court order to stop his deputies from, from racial profiling down in Arizona. And, you know, I just heard today the people who organized the Million Women March um, after the inauguration of the 45th president are saying, like, signed a letter saying that if DACA is canceled, that 5,000 people are pledged, 5 million people who are in the streets are pledged to resist the canceling of DACA. We need that. We need lots of resistance in yeah. the streets these days with all of this uh, white supremacy, really, that's coming out of the administration. Mm -hmm. uh, we need people in the streets to, to say no. Mm. And news from Syria, up to 20,000 people remain trapped amid fierce fighting in the ISIS-controlled city of Raqqa where U.S. airstrikes have left much of the city in ruins. Civilian activists inside Raqqa have claimed that U.S. airstrikes have killed more civilians than ISIS. Okay. Uh, also in the U.S. this week in Georgia, a Cobb County police lieutenant resigned on Thursday just before he was to be fired uh, after another one of, you know, another video surfacing showing him telling a woman during a traffic stop Quote, unquote, we only kill black people. The dash cam video taken in July of 2016 shows Lieutenant Greg Abbott 
ordering a woman at a DUI traffic stop to use her cell phone to make a call. The woman indicated she's afraid to reach for her cell phone because she's seen so many of these videos of police shootings. Um, and so he responds to her, quote unquote, but you're not black. Remember, we only kill black people. Yeah, we only kill black people, right? All the videos you, you've seen, have you seen any white people get killed? This interaction took place just days after the death of Minnesota motorist Philando Castile, uh, an African-American man who was shot to death by police uh, in an incident that was live streamed on Facebook by his girlfriend. And I think we all saw that when uh, the New York Times published those videos, both of Philando being killed and of his girlfriend in the back of the, the police uh, cruiser with her, with her young daughter. So I, this is a lot of heavy news to start out a show with, and I think it's important as we continue to, as we open up the show to talk about what's happening in Lebanon. We're not talking about Lebanon, New Hampshire. We're talking about Lebanon, the country, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the conditions of Syrian refugees. We want to also be making connections and looking at the larger context of what's happening in our world and why it's happening. Right, and I think there's a lot of connections that we can make between what's happening in Lebanon and what's happening on the streets here in the U.S. So let's go to our first song. It's The God of Revolution by Marwan Makhoul, Therese Suleiman, and Tamir Nafar, based on a poem, uh, God of Revolution, which was written by Marwan Makhoul. وحشا إن جاع لا وحشي 
عدلها العصرية يوميا روسيا تمانع فتزرع وردة سوداء في البارجات على شاطئ الشرق المقدس والمكدس بالمذابح في شلوم على الغريب مش اني عم بحن بس اسم اللعبة سياسة ولد the best man win واحنا صامدون يا وطن تعرفوا من كمان صامد الصنم طيور العالم بتوسخ عليه هو لا حراك بس بلم غبار مدار الزمن <تصفيق> مش حلوم الزعيم الزعيم مجرد توب بنخلعه بنلبس غيره بس جسدنا بيضلوا عفن كمان طفلة كمان طفلة محروقة بين يدين ابوها بطل تحوق هاي العراق فلسطين مصر ولا سوريا لو انحط بموقف مشابه اللي فيه فشلت احمي طفلي فبسهوله بقولها اتركوا ولادي وخذوا العروبه الهي سكرتم من الوطنجيين وتجار الكليشيهات للحظه مجبور اعترف مش قادر اتباهى اني عربي اخر فتره انا واعي انها مؤامره بس حتى لو نتفق ونهتف انه الغرب بيزرع بيننا الفتنه تعا نحاول نزرعها بينهم وبنكشف انه بس عقولنا الخصبه لما الفردوس مات بعيون البشر الاول احنا خدنا من الورث بس وحده قبيل وهبيل الاخوه هم اخذوا التفاحه طوروها للابل واحنا لسه بنصنف بنكمل بنتمبل هدلوطي هتنسونجي هي عاهري هي قهبه هتخونجي هتملحد ليش مش متجوزه يا معنسه هتسلفي هتقبطي اذا في ديني مكتوب تفري انا بدي اكون امي الهي اذا هات صوتك في المنابر زي ما هم من قايلين فاهديني مكيف واحذفني الى الجحيم مع باقي الصالحين في بلادي سنه الله شيعه الاخرين والصليبيون يهودا يجلسون على الحياد ولا حياد على الجهاد Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. Today we are talking about Lebanon and the conditions of people, particularly Syrian refugees living in the country. In a moment, we'll hear an interview uh, from people working in the Bekaa Valley. But first, Nick, that was God of Revolution. Can you tell us a little bit about what that song was about? Sure. So uh, I actually just have a little bit of a translation here. And if people want to get on YouTube, you could just type in God of Revolution. Um, the first few, uh, the first stanza is, let's set a tent 
on two pegs in front of a lamentation, some herbs and two rocks instead of a lighter. Do you think that the world will notice that we are gone? Give me my land as a last refuge. So check it out on YouTube. There's English translation right on the bottom of the video. Yeah. So Nick, we're so glad to have you here in the studio with us. This is your second time on Indigo Thanks, Air. <laughs> um, you've been living in Lebanon for the past three years, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the history of Lebanon and what's currently happening with conditions of refugees there, just to kind of help set the context for us before we hear from Ali and Hiba about the conditions in the camps. Sure. So... Most importantly, I think we should talk about the geography of Lebanon. Lebanon is bordered uh, to the west by the sea, by the Mediterranean Sea. It's almost completely surrounded by Syrian land. And on the bottom, of course, there's Palestine. Um, so basically, at this moment in time, Lebanon has no land border that's easy to cross for most people. Um, in the past, the Syrian regime has occupied Lebanon, so there is a tense relationship between the Lebanese and Syrian people, particularly now that there's been a huge influx over the last seven years now. The Syrian conflict has been raging on. Um, so more than there's been at least more than two million Syrian refugees that either have settled for some time or have passed through Lebanon to travel elsewhere. So uh, Lebanese, ordinary Lebanese people who don't necessarily have what they need, uh, proper electrical infrastructure, water, um, school, like good schooling, uh, enough food, a decent, decent job, these kinds of things that ordinary people need uh, are being what they would see as and what politicians are talking as threatened because of this influx of Syrian refugees. So there has been some tension in the country, um, a lot of tension actually recently, and Ali and Hiba will talk more about that. Um, but the conditions that I've seen that Syrian refugees are living in range from, you know, a nice apartment if people were wealthy before the war and were able to escape with whatever wealth that they had, um, to tarps in a valley that's unprotected by trees or anything around it. Um, so that just kind of gives you a little picture of how, you know, there's a range. There's a range of refugees who live in Beirut in really poor conditions, working really terrible and difficult jobs, being exploited, get, making $1 a day, right, to work on construction. The same goes for those living in the valley near the Syrian border. And then there are those who have money, right, and mm -hmm. have wealth that came from Syria that live in really nice apartments, right? Like yeah. we have here. And this isn't the first time that Lebanon's kind of been um, a holding container for people who have been forced off of their lands. There's right. been camp, Palestinian camps in Lebanon for since the 60s, correct? Uh, actually, the camps that Palestinians live in were created for the Armenians who were escaping Turkish genocide. Mm. Those camps were then used uh, in 48 and 49 to establish official Palestinian camps by UNORWA, which is the UN agency responsible for Palestinians. Those camps still house Palestinians, and now uh, Palestinian Syrians, so Palestinians from Syria, have come to live in the Palestinian camps, and also Syrians have come to live in the camps because 
these places are poor and that means that rent is cheap, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if I'm a refugee and I don't have money, where am I going to go? I'm going to head to the cheapest place that, you know, a place that I can afford. And so these camps have swelled from a population of 40,000 and doubled to 80,000. In the center of a city, you know, there's no, uh, there's no water, there's no electricity. People are brushing their teeth with salt water um, and washing their clothes with salt water. So the situation is also difficult for Palestinian refugees who, like Syrian refugees, are not legally able to work. Palestinian refugees have it a little bit different. They're, there's about 70 professions that they're not allowed to work in. Um, Syrian refugees altogether are not, not given permission, legal permission to work. Hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like with the people's needs not being met in Lebanon and more people coming in needing those basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter. Um, but it's not that there's not resources in Lebanon either. Right, of course. There's so much money in the banks in Lebanon um, who are owned by very few people, mm-hmm. very few families. And like in the U.S., uh, we see this really crazy increase in prices, but we don't see a simultaneous increase in wage, Mm. right? So in Lebanon, between the period of 93 and 2000, prices skyrocketed like 115%, but wages stayed the same. Uh, And I think that's something that Americans in this country can relate to. Mm. Yeah, and also the, we'll talk more about this on the show, but pitting people against each other for the, what is believed a scarcity of resources. Right. Yeah. So if I can just introduce this interview, Ali and Hiba work for Syrian Eyes. It's a group of, or of refugees themselves who are youth, who vo- have volunteered their time and effort and money to start projects and work with people who have nothing, um, who've come from Syria. So we'll hear from Ali and Hiba now. wanted to ask you a few questions and we hope that you could start by telling us a little bit about your work. Okay, so uh, so mainly basically Syrianize is a voluntary uh, group that uh, that were found uh, in Lebanon four years ago and um, we do uh, different kinds of uh, projects and activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them are in uh, the Bekaa Valley. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's more towards the Syrian border, right? Than Beirut. Exactly. Okay. Uh, like, it's like uh, 15 minutes from the Syrian borders. Okay. Um, we do... Um, so mainly we started in like doing uh, some uh, f- Facebook events, campaigns to collect uh, like um, winterizations, like uh, the basic needs of like people who just arrived to the camps in, uh, in the Baqa. Okay. So start collecting like secondhand stuff, like blankets, uh, clothes, all kinds of stuff. And uh, we did some like uh, surveys in the camps to decide like where is the place we would uh, want to start working mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And then we started taking this stuff from Beirut and distributing them in the Baqa, okay. in the camp. Um, 
and then we developed our works to to uh, our work to do uh, more of uh, educational and more of development uh, activities. So we 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 built a community center in one of the camps, and uh, like a field clinic uh, with two doctors who provide. Uh, free medicine and uh, free tests like the basic tests, medical test. And uh, we we started a bakery in uh, in the camp uh, in a village called uh, Maraj uh, in Jarahiya settlement. And there are like six people benefiting uh, from the job opportunities in the bakery. Mm-hmm. And of course we we were we were selling the the bread for like uh, affordable price. Uh, for the people in in the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yes, we also have uh, projects like uh, not only in the camps, but we have uh, we participated in a project for heritage education. Mm-hmm. Uh, the volunteers participated. It was a training started by training and then activities with children. And we also have uh, the activity space now in Al Faris camp, uh, which is in Arrauda, also in Biqa. Uh, and this space is for activities with the children, recreational activities. So we can use it as, uh, like, uh, by the team, by the volunteers, and also like uh, uh, other volunteering teams. Uh, from outside Lebanon or from Lebanon, uh, uh, yeah, use the space. And uh, we also had, uh, over the three years, uh, we had programs of, uh, like, you know, uh, like winter campaigns, like every winter the situation uh, gets really bad in the Beqa, and because people are living in, uh, in places that are not, uh, that were not made for like for living, long period. right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's not made f- to handle the winter or you know the the like the harsh weather and all this. Mm. So we've been working uh, like every winter to like provide the basics to do rehabilitation to the tents to like fix the streets by providing gravel and by providing you know the construction wood or the the nylon covers and all the basic stuff and of course we have programs so we also work on like uh, uh, wash and uh, like providing uh, clean water to camps and uh, providing like uh, water tanks Mm. and that's 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 mainly what we do okay that was Ali uh, talking about the work of Ayun Suriye or Syrian Eyes. Uh, up next, we're going to play the song Passport, sung by Marcel Khalife, but written uh, and taken from the poem Passport or Jawaz Safari by Mahmoud Darwish. Thank you. 
تصوني في الظلال التي تمتص لوني في جواز السفر وكان جرحي عندهم معرضا لسابح يعشق جمع الصور لم يعرفوني آه لا تتركي كفي بلا شمس لأن الشجرة يعرفني تعرفني كل أغاني المطر لأن الشجرة يعرفني تعرفني كل أغاني المطر لا Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. And you just heard the song Passport, sung by Marcel Khalife from the poem Passport, or Jawaz Safari, which was written by Mahmoud Darwish. Some of the lyrics just to share with you. All of the birds that followed the palm of my hand to the door of the faraway airport, all of the fields of wheat, all the prisons, all the white graves, all the borders, all the handkerchiefs that waved, all the eyes. So we're going to return back to the interview with Ali and Hiba talking about conditions in the Bekaa Valley. Okay, so within that we heard a little bit about you describing uh, the living conditions the harsh winters, the tents, um, like needing to put gravel down in the in the roadways inside of the the settlements you called them, Ali. Um, can you describe the situation a little bit more? Give us a picture of how people are living in the Bekka and what their daily lives are like. So, so basically, it's first. I will start with the the uh, the situation of 
the residency. So people are staying in private lands. Mm. Uh, there's like there's no uh, specific area or st- specific like settlement. It's all like private lands of Lebanese people who rent them to the refugee families. And uh, mainly it's like also the, the refugees uh, are the ones who pay for the rents. Okay. And they also pay for electricity, they pay for, like, any regular, uh, you know, family living in anywhere, like, mm. even, like, the families who live in Beirut or in houses, it's the same for refugees. Mm. But the difference is that uh, they're unable to work, for example, because the Lebanese law forbid them from working. Mm. And people mostly rely on, like, the, uh, the aid, uh, like, the... The food vouchers they receive from unit CR or else, and usually they sell these uh, vouchers or they sell uh, the let's say the vouchers of the diesel for the winter, which they receive from Save the Children, and they pay the rents or they like they live with them. So, uh, and what's the average rent, the, Ali, that people yeah. are paying? What's the what's the average rent that people are paying? So the average is uh, forty to fifty dollars a month. Okay. And so you said that there's no, they're living on private lands. There's no official UN camps. What about children? Are they? Living in the Bekka. Usually they sell these uh, vouchers, or they sell. Uh, the let's say the vouchers of the diesel for the winter, which they receive from Save the Children, and they pay the rents or they like they live with them. So, uh, and what's the average rent, the, Ali, that people yeah. are paying? What's the what's the average rent that people are paying? So the average is uh, forty to fifty dollars a month. And so you said that there's no, they're living on private lands, there's no official UN camps. What about children? Are they able to go to school? Do they have, you know, proper clothing? What What's the situation there? So, uh, well, so there is there is a program that was launched in 2016. And it's called Back to School Initiative, and where they allowed, like, uh, Syrian children to uh, to part to like attend the Lebanese schools, mm. but it didn't go very well. Like uh, you know, the Lebanese school were not capable of handling all the numbers of Syrian and Lebanese children, and uh, because like so, what they did is that they added like a second shift to mm. the same schools with the same teachers, but more kids. So, uh, and that, that's, that's one of the reasons, of course, uh, that not many Syrian children are, are able to attend the schools. Uh, plus, there was no, uh, like, monitoring over the, the programs that they were giving to the uh, children. Mm-hmm. And also, the, like, the way, you know, the way the, this, like, these programs were delivered to the children. So, there was a lot of violence, and in many cases, there was... Uh, there was, you know, there were there were schools that were also bringing the kids in the schools, but not giving them any like knowledge or any like uh, classes. So, uh, but there are camps like, let's say, for example, the camp where we were, Jarahia. Mm. 
there there are NGOs who have like private schools uh, in uh, in different uh, areas, but uh, the thing is they 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 can't they can't give the the children certificates. So basically, the kids uh, the kids who are lucky enough to get into schools. Uh, it's still limited for them, so they can't get certificates. So, uh, in other words, they can't continue their their studying. Yeah. Right. Oh wow. So, what about what's happened been happening in the camps recently? I know I heard that there was a large fire, and just going back to the conditions that people are living in, people are. You said they were living in tarps, both in the summer heat and in the winter cold. Um, so what's happening, what's been happening there this summer? So, um, so what, what we know we're aware of, you know, that's, mm. so mainly in summer, it's always happening. Like okay. every summer there are, you know, there are uh, many settlements that, uh, that go on fire. Mm. But the, the main reasons it's, I think it's not the, the summer thing. I think it's because they're not, uh, well built, like. Okay. The electricity systems, the, uh, the the electricity systems are not uh, are not made to handle like uh, uh, like large settlements of this oh, kind. Exactly, like yeah. the pressure of uh, big populations using right. uh, regular lines, and they're not managed by municipalities. Okay. It's all like private private uh, people providing the camps with electricity. So. They're using very like uh, like old kind of uh, uh, fashion system, you know. Right. Like it, it needs to be like set in a different way. So most of the fires that we know happen because of either the electricity electricity reason, or mm. because like uh, in the know, kitchen. Exactly, like kitchen accidents, like because mm. it's it's the tent is made of nylon, so right. anything happens like a small, you know. Uh, you know, spark and everything will go on fire. So, right, and because everything is made of nylon around there, a lot of other people are affected by those fires. Exactly, because they used to to uh, uh, to stable the the nylon sheet. They use like tires, the wheels. Mm. Uh, the yeah, which also set on fire, right? Very easily. And it's very like uh, able to to go on fire. So. Okay. So, welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community station. You were just hearing from Ali, who is describing the work in the Bekaa Valley and the conditions of Syrians living in camps there. And they're actually not camps, though, right, Becca? They're settlements because there's no official UNHCR camps that have been set up for Syrian refugees because of the history uh, of Lebanon hosting Palestinian refugees, Armenian refugees, um, and their now long stay in the country. So there's been a refusal by the, the government to, to set up camps, official right. camps. Right, he described how people are having to pay rent from private <coughs> lands. Right, the people and work on that land also, mm. um, which, yeah. yeah. And I just can't imagine how people are going about paying rent when they're not allowed to work in Lebanon. Right. And so Ali was saying that <clears throat> there, the, a lot of people are receiving vouchers from UNHCR um, 
or other uh, international agencies like Save the Children, and they're selling them uh, to be able to pay their rent, which he said was 40 to $50 a month. Mm -hmm. um, but also people are being, like, people are working. People are working um, illegally mm -hmm. to survive, yeah. which puts them both at risk uh, of being caught by the, by the authorities, but also uh, alternatively at the risk of exploitation um, because a lot of people are not even making $2 a day. Mm. So let's go to our next song, <clears throat> Li Beirut by Farouz. Yep, by Farouz. من قلبي سلام لبيروت وقبل للبحر والبيوت لصخرة كأنها on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks everyone's books for their support of this station. This is Indigo Radio on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. Just wanted to let you know of a couple things coming up. 
Brattleboro Solidarity is going to be running in the Race Against Racism on September 17th at Montpelier High School. It starts at 11.30. Come join us for a walk, run, just to support, cheer people on. You can contact Brattleboro Solidarity at gmail.com if you're interested in participating with us. We also have our third session of Construction of Whiteness study group where you'll learn about the history of racism in this country. And it's a four-week study group that will be held at Antioch in Keene on September 25th, October 2nd, October 9th, and October 16th. That's all Monday, 6 to 7.30. Again, contact Brattleboro Solidarity if you're interested in participating. And let's continue back to the show. Nick, maybe you can just start out by telling us what that song we just heard was about. So that song uh, was sung by Feiruz. Um Also, her name means turquoise. But she actually, a lot of people call her the heart of... Lebanon. She sings so many songs about so many different villages. Uh, so this song is about Beirut. It says, a greeting from my heart to Beirut, kisses to the sea and the houses, to a rock which is like an old sailor's face. She's made from the people's soul, from wine. So we're going to continue now with Ali's interview, Ali and Hiba. So what about the recent talks and not so recent talks, because this has been happening for a while, to return Syrians to Syria? More recently, there's been talk of safe zones, quote unquote. Um, And if the situation continues this way, as you've been describing, do you foresee people returning on their own, uh, you know, by choice because of their situation in Lebanon? So... uh so basically, we, we're not sure about this yet. So we don't know that. You know, we can't guarantee. No one can guarantee that uh, this kind of agreement. And if there will be a safe zone, like we don't know how safe this could be. Right. And because there is like a, 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 an, a, an event that happened uh, in 2014, mm. where there was 800 Syrian families who came from Arsal and they were sent to Syria, and it was meant to be a deal between uh, the regime and uh, I'm not sure who's the other party, but mm. uh, in this case, they, they forced people to go back to Syria. Mm. And in a way, we tried to keep in contact with them and then we lost contact, but we don't, we don't know what, you know, we didn't know where they were taking them. We tried to ask the authorities, we tried to ask the Mukhabarat, the ones who were moving people inside, mm. and no one, no one gave us any answer. And people were really scared. So in this situation, we were thinking that, okay, there might be a deal and there might be a safe zone for them. But, you know, like, we, we know that the families have made it there, but we don't know if, like, uh, like men, like husbands and, you know, uh, like male, uh, male young, you know, yeah, uh, young people have made it actually safely there. Right, or if they were then forced to or forcibly recruited. By an if, there's, if there's no if there's no big decision, you know that mm. that is being monitored by the UN or you know uh, big political parties, no one will guarantee anything. Right, and even then, sometimes that is not also a guarantee, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
So, and what do you think if this actually, you know, if people are actually forced to leave or if they choose to leave, because I have heard of some people leaving by choice because it's just so difficult for them inside of Lebanon. What are the risks that people face if they return to Syria? So I think it, it depends you know, on the, the area they came from and the area they're going to. Mm. But in general, like most of the families, let's say, uh, who came, let's say, from Ghouta, for example, or from like from uh, Damascus. Mm. And uh, most of the ones who lost their houses, you know, I assume that they're not going to the same uh, places they came from. So it's just another experience of being refugees just somewhere else. Right inside your own country exactly exactly so they're going they they're just going with with nothing you know like mm. just starting all over so that's what i'm assuming and we've also seen cases of this inside of lebanon right where refugees are actually forced to move their tents whether it's 200 meters or you know that's, 200 miles people are forced to move around and again start over after all of this loss and displacement um, yeah, that's right. That's right. And it happened not long time ago, Yana. So it's also a big, a big problem because they're they're making people like take off their stuff and everything. And of course, the the tents they are living in, in a they they were not made to be moved as well. So hmm. it's like one time, and whenever they build them, it's that's the place. You know, they can't move them anywhere else. They will not be useful. You know. So, and there there are laws and. Like from all the municipalities, the Lebanese municipalities, that uh, no one, no like Syrian family or refugees uh, are allowed to build a tent anywhere, any mm. anymore. Yeah. Mm. So you know they're, they're they're making in some cases and they're making people remove their tents and take all their stuff to move somewhere, and there is a law that's against this. You know. Mm. And it happened in many cases, like uh, the case, uh, the, the eviction that happened near the uh, Riyadh, for example, Riyadh airport. Uh, mm. So they moved around uh, 600 families mm. and there was like uh, a discussion or like a debate between all the uh, municipalities. And like there's only one municipality accepted to take refugees in again. Okay. And so you then know, we... So, we ask, where are these people supposed to go, right? Exactly, and there is no answer for this. Mm. Like, they tell you it's forbidden to take more people in any other village. So no one knows, like, no one knows the answer. Like, you can't go to any, like, uh, authority or someone to give you, like, you know, a hint or some, like, idea of what we can do next. Right. People are just left on the side of the street to figure it out, and then there's no solution. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, so we know that uh, that Lebanese wealth is owned by such a small group of people, right? And so I wonder, who is benefiting from all of this? Because we've heard talk, just like we hear here in the U.S., you know, immigrants are taking our jobs. Just like I've, we've heard in Lebanon, you know, Syrians are taking our jobs. So do you think that the refugee situation is being used to divert the attention of ordinary people. Who do you think is benefiting from all of this? So, of course, I think that you know, the uh, 
in the first place and the government is benefiting like because we've been discussing this for for the last while and you know uh let's say for example like the middle beqa where where there is uh the highest population of uh, syrian refugees uh and we've been like asking around like how did you know this area look uh three or four years ago mm. And everyone told us, like, Lebanese people told us that it was like an empty area. It was like a highway that you pass through to go to Syria or to go to Beirut. And that's it. Okay. And now we can see, like, if you go to this area, let's say Barilias, you can see, like, it's full of, like, businesses, it's full of restaurants, it's full of, uh, like, big malls and all this. And, of course, and uh, these big, like, businesses are bringing, like, job opportunities to a lot of people as well. Mm. whether Syrian or Lebanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the first place the government is benefiting and of course the rich like the rich people are also benefiting because like they already had uh, you know the money for it mm-hmm. and now they got the chance to like to use all like the uh, money that's coming from the INGOs and the big investments and all this. Mm. And there's also uh, right a lot of labor to exploit. Right, Syrians can't necessarily work legally, as you said before, but they need to pay their rent, and so then they're forced to work in really vulnerable situations. Absolutely, that's why. That's why, and uh, you can see, like, if you go to to these like areas, you can see that, uh, in, like the 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 highest number of like uh, labor workers are are Syrians because. They have to make money, and they would accept like to work with very cheap prices. So, right, yeah. and particularly in construction, right? There's a lot of Syrian men who come to Lebanon to build buildings, and it's ironic that at the same time their homes and the buildings in Syria are in the process of being destroyed. And it's not it's not a matter of like the the situation right now. It's not something that happened after the war in Syria, mm. like. Even long time ago, Syrian uh, Syrian workers used to come to Lebanon to get like job opportunities and all this, mm-hmm. and it was all also like it was always being in the same like uh, like these limited you know uh, kinds of jobs, mm. like in construction. You mean, and in labor exactly. jobs? Yeah, it's not it's not a matter of like uh, a new population coming, refugees and all this. Mm-hmm. It's been always like this. So. Right. And those same people who own the Lebanese wealth are those who are singing that we should send Syrians back to Syria, yes? Yes, exactly. Mm. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show, Ali and You're Heba. Welcome. I also got to spend some time with Ali and Heba in the Bekka, and they do a great job. Uh, with Aida and everyone else on the team. I know also so many other people have traveled, so we appreciate so much the work that you're doing and continue to do. Thank you so much. We hope we see you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community's radio station. We were just hearing an interview from... Ali and Hiba working in the Bekaa Valley and their work um, and also the conditions of Syrian refugees living in Lebanon. Mm. 
And part of uh, what Ali was describing there about the conditions was that for years Syrians have been coming to Lebanon to work, um, but again in their new conditions as refugees, they're uh, even more vulnerable, let's say, to being paid very little, which creates competition amongst between them and Lebanese workers, um, which has created tensions, as we were talking about before. And I just think so <clears throat> much about how many people around the world are being forced to flee from their homes, whether mm -hmm. it's um, human-created environmental catastrophes or war, the drones, the bombing, the droughts, mm. famines, you know, mm. all of these things that are part of um, our daily lives now. We hear them all the time in the news and, and this idea of where are people supposed to go? Mm. The fact that people are fleeing their homes into this country, into the United States, into Lebanon, the same thing happens in Europe and South Africa. People are fleeing mm. to find, to provide for their families and survive and they're not welcome there and they're being pushed back off the land and the instability of that. Right, and I think that this brings us back to the ban, right? The Muslim ban. Um, and Ali, I had asked Ali about the safe zones particularly because I found it interesting that in the first draft of the Muslim ban that came out in January, I think it was January 25th or 26th of this year after the new administration came into office, Part of the first Muslim ban was to create these safe zones so that <clears throat> Syrian refugees who are in Jordan, in Turkey, and Lebanon will be pushed back into Syria, technically, um, to these safe zones. No one knows what a safe zone is. That hasn't been defined by anyone um, some people have started to move back because they are worried that they will be forced to move back. Um, so it's not necessarily a choice, but this is the choice that they have at this moment. Um, and that, I think, is really scary. Mm. And I just think about this, the question that you asked of who's benefiting. There's this, um, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but like a business that's be that's being created from disasters right. or not being created now that is in full mm -hmm. work, right? It has been running. Right. The privatization, the swooping in, this idea of economic opportunity and jobs and development mm. for who and right. who's going to, you know, the big NGOs sweeping in, whether it's the Red Cross or Save the Children, mm. just all of this money that's being thrown about, how is it? How is it really changing the lives of people? Right, and I think that it's, um, as we were talking earlier, it's a Band-Aid solution. This is something I heard a from a lot of people being in Lebanon. I don't want to be here. I don't want money from Save the Children. I don't need a food, I don't need food stamps. I don't need a food basket. I want to go home. Mm. And if the U.S. coalition, like we were saying earlier, is bombing Raqqa because ISIS is there, no, there's no political solution that's coming into play, right? Um, there's no political solution that's on the table even because there's a weapons industry that's making money. And also then there's an NGO industry which is sending people overseas. We're, we're spending tax dollars to clean up the mess that 
a lot of times we're making. Yeah, and I just um, think the perfect example, the horrific example of this is in Iraq mm, with the reconstruction, mm. that it's um, not about actually meeting the needs of the people in Iraq. It's about opening up new businesses. Right. Um, and a lot of the NGOs actually closed in Iraq, like really leaving a lot of people who had come to depend on these services because the government collapsed um, and was destroyed and didn't collapse on its own. Um, people were relying on these services and then they were gone. So, wh so what, are we, what are we creating and how are we actually helping with NGOs? I'm not sure that it makes much sense and it definitely doesn't make sense to the people who are living this life. The same countries that are destroying are then taking advantage of rebuilding and right. making a lot of profit. Yeah, a lot and of profit. And so I think we need to think about that and when we're, our, our, the heart, people's hearts are going, all, have been going out to people in Syria since the bombing started. Right. And also to Hurricane Harvey, really thinking about how do we change conditions for people so that these things are not happening, not just giving the Band-Aid solutions. Right, and it's also a matter of not only being interested in these things happening when the U.S. media is, like, flooding our TV screen or our radio with snippets, right? Mm. It's much more complex and complicated, I think, than the U.S. media has made it. The history, uh, the daily life, those are things that, that need a lot of time to figure out. So you've been listening to Indigo Radio. That's our show for today. Thank you so much, Lauren, for running the board. Thanks, Lauren. And for Nick for coming into the studio. We hope to have you in a lot more over Thanks. these next couple months. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're out. Stay tuned next week on Sunday at noon for Indigo Radio. And you can find us at Facebook or also on podcasts. Thanks so much. I'm